This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. So we're talking about fruit metaphors in Genesis 3, so let's take a closer look. Well, yes, but no. Well, uh, uh, what? Well, I want to summarize all of what we've done up to this okay. point, because what I noticed next in the text actually is really dependent upon the things we've said up to this point. Okay. So God makes fruit in chapter one. Mm -hmm. Then when he's talking to the first man and woman, so he creates fruit in Genesis chapter one on day three. Then on day six, he makes humanity and tells them to be fruitful and multiply using this fruit metaphor. Then in chapter two, we get introduced into some more details of the garden and the fruit, and we find out that there's such a thing as bad fruit, this fruit that you're not supposed to use. But yet, it's not like you have fruits and vegetables, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and oh yeah, by the way, don't eat this vegetable. Right. No, it's fruit. It's still this single category of things that you're going to be in pursuit of, but there's a type of fruit that you're going to be in pursuit of that you should not be. Okay. It's always pondered, everyone, why God chooses to put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place. I don't know. I it, I don't know that it's a question we're ever going to answer. I mean, I feel like, I don't know if this is a good answer, but the one that I think I've heard the most is that God wanted to give them a choice to follow or not to follow. Yeah, it's really not a good answer because according to the legend of how we've gotten demons and Satan, they also had a choice. Right. So the general concept of a choice is not unique to humans. Right. Um, depending on how you build that cosmic evil force narrative. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's a good argument. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think so either, but like that's the one that I've heard the most. Yeah, I think, well, and you know, in, um, Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. I was thinking about this text earlier today, but I hadn't really thought about it in this conversation. I was thinking about it in another conversation. But um, when God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, mm -hmm. and he takes him up the mountain, and when he gets to the top, he builds the altar, and he says, okay, go ahead and sacrifice. Yeah. And then as the narrative goes, as he raises the knife, right, the angel of the Lord says, stop. Right. When the angel of the Lord says, stop, I think it's in verse 12. He says, for now, I know that you fear God. Mm. As if there was some question of Abraham's faith Reverence. up to yeah. that point. Um, so maybe in the same way, God put the kind of test there to see if they would do it. Mm. Um, I, I really don't know. But... 
one thing that opens a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> well, it does, but I mean, when you're having this conversation, you have yeah. to say, okay, well, why did you put it there in the first place? Right. And while we're at it, I think maybe even the better question is, where is he when they needed him? He's absent, right? When Eve and Adam are talking to the serpent, God seems nowhere to be found, even though they seem to have a relationship with him that. And later in chapter 3, they know when he's walking in the garden. I've never thought about that. It's just a question. If you're going to ask these questions, you might as well ask all of them that are worth a darn. Yeah. um, That's an interesting question that I... A, I don't think I have an answer for. I feel like I want to answer it by saying, like... Well, he intentionally did that. Okay. But, like, that's not an answer. That's a non-answer in reality. Um, Well, truth is, all of these questions are non-starters. Yeah. Because they can't really take us anywhere. Right. But I wanted to point them out because we are talking about the nitty-gritty details of this. And so with the tree being there and it being this other kind of fruit, there is something unique about this text when you put it all into this construct. Right after, or at the end of chapter two, the text says, The very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So you have this setup that through chapter 1 and 2, you have this ultimate level of vulnerability before the grand stage that God has made for you. And there's no shame present in the world, Mm -hmm. which means that they are fully embracing the commands of God to be fruitful and multiply. Then we get to chapter three. They eat the fruit, which we looked at last time. And my argument and encouragement was that I think Eve's attempts were good. Picking up from there, the text says right after they eat, verse 7 of chapter 3 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Now, let me ask you a question. Who are all the characters of the story that we've been introduced to thus far? Adam, Eve, God, obviously, um, and the serpent. So, obviously, as soon as this happens things change because now they've disobeyed God. They, they're experiencing something they've never experienced before. 
So who do you think they're most concerned with seeing their nakedness? Probably God. You would think so, wouldn't you? I think it's a little bit of everything. Mm. I think shame. I think they don't want anyone to see them, including their spouse, the serpent, or God. I think it's just the whole thing that shame has overtaken them, and they're going to hide their nakedness. And here's why I think that. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be (laughs) with me, she gave me fruit from the tree. And I ate. That always makes me laugh. The woman that you gave to me. Yeah. That makes me so, that makes me, that makes me laugh every time. Isn't it interesting? Because you can really read that Hebrew construction two ways. Syntactically, Adam's clearly blaming Eve. Yeah. But God, the you, is attached to the verb gave. Right. So in Hebrew construction, the verb is causal. Right. So he's blaming God. He's both somehow blaming God and blaming Eve. His two most intimate relationships he's ever known. In his own shame, he turned on his relationships. That opens lots of things for me that I actually want to talk about tomorrow on Let's Talk. Okay. But, yeah. You may not want to because I think where you want to go is where I'm headed. Oh, okay. We'll see. Whether or not you think it's fair that God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place is beside the point. What we know is that he did, and the story tells us they ate of it. And what I can tell you is I think one of the reasons that God said, hey, don't eat of that, is because whatever is happening in that fruit, whatever it is, it ruins relationships Mm -hmm. because now you have an image that you have to uphold. Our experience of shame directly impacts the way that we present ourselves. Adam, oddly enough, becomes the model toxic masculinity person. Yep, he's the first one. And Eve becomes a very big finger pointer Mm. when she says... 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me. <laughs> so it's she like, blames the serpent. It's like that Spider-Man meme. Like, <laughs> Well, she blames the serpent and herself. Does that not follow a normal pattern of an ancient household? Because mm. let's not forget that last week when we looked at this text... I pointed out to you that Adam is clearly standing right next to her when this goes down. Yeah. But yet she doesn't turn back around and go, hey, Adam was here too. She says, no, it's the serpent's fault. And by the way, he tricked me. She takes that blame. I think the point here is, is that we're called to pursue fruit. And the right kind of fruit is going to yield right relationships. The wrong kind of fruit is going to make relationships very, very difficult. That escalates in the next chapter. What happens is is we head down this road and we've got these fruit. I absolutely think we're Adam and Eve. And I think every day we're Adam and Eve. It's almost like every day you wake up and you're like, hey, I know that tree's over there. I'm not supposed to eat it. But some point, by the end of the day, I'm going to go eat that fruit. I don't know why. It's just like what I talked about last week, right? But the thing I'm confident of is that you got a tree of life and you got a tree of death. That tree of death is going to bring death to your relationships. Whatever it is, whatever your unhealthy fruit that you're pursuing, trying to heal um, your divine likeness, however you're choosing to try to do that, that's going to bring experiences of death to your relationships. Mm. When this one is going to yield life and life abundantly. Mm. And no matter where you are in this journey, right? God ends up following up and he gives four very big curses. I mean, they are monumental curses. He curses the serpent. He curses the man. He curses the woman. And he curses the ground. He curses the earth. He curses all of existence. And that's a, that becomes a very big deal because as you go out through the rest of the narrative, what you'll learn is that blessings and curses can't be taken back. Think back to your um, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau story. When Jacob steals the blessing yeah. from Esau and Esau goes and confronts Isaac, do you remember what Isaac's response back to Esau is? Essentially, like, it can't be undone. I've already, what's done is done. I can't take it back. You ever thought why the curse of Ham is never touched again? Because blessings and curses are final. They can't be taken back. There's other things there about that, but. Well, don't. No. I'm not, we're not going there, but. 
in Hebrew culture, blessings and curses cannot be undone. Once they're spoken into existence, they're done. But the thing that I want to point out to you, listener, is you. we read these texts and we go, okay, this is very, very bad. Yeah. And God's clearly mad. Right? He's just cursed all the things he's ever made. Yeah. Minus, you know, the angels. But everything we've seen him make in the story, he's now cursing. So you ask yourselves the question, what's coming next? Do you remember what comes next, Clayton? Verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Now remember... What's the promise to Adam in Genesis chapter 2? What would happen if he ate of the tree? That he would die. He would die. Does he die? Not immediately. Not in this moment. But clearly death has entered the world. One of the things, and I've wrestled with this text for about a month, one of the things that I find so beautiful about this text is that even in the first three chapters, we're willing to see God do something, go against his own nature mm. to care for humanity. God commits the first act of death in killing the animals to make the skins to clothe them right. because he knows how much shame they feel. He gets it. And God is willing, as we see the parable of the lost coin and in the story of Jesus and in the parable of the prodigal son, God is willing to go to the absolute end to take away your shame. And you're littered with it. We're all littered with it. Don't think that I'm free of it or Clayton's free of it or... We all have this experience of shame because we're all pursuing fruit. We're all pursuing this divine likeness, this divine image. And some of us are trying to pursue it in some unhealthy ways because we're looking to heal from some things we've never healed from. And when you pursue the wrong fruit, you bring about shame. And that shame impacts your relationships and those that are close to you. Not not only does it impact your relationships, but it impacts how you view yourself too, which is also really important. Um, well, that's Eve's character in the story. Yeah, exactly. She blames herself. You blame yourself. You start having lots of negative self-talk. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this yesterday because um, a post went out about it. Um, when you're engaging in negative self-talk, and blaming yourself, um, and you're saying negative things about yourself, you're saying negative things about the image of God within you. Yeah. And therefore, you're saying negative things about God. Mm -hmm. As your creator, yep. As your creator. And so, shame causes 
so much death and experiences of death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I guess this is where you're going. Maybe I'm wrong. But the the hope there is that there is restoration, right from shame. There is ways to heal and cope. There are healthy ways to heal and cope. Um, and this is going to sound bible and pray it away, and that's not what I mean by this, but through the power of Jesus, healing and restoration exists. Um, now, that can exist in multiple, multiple facets, right, through therapy and, and things. Um, and healthy relationships, can help you work through that shame just by talking about it. Um, and I'll be honest, and Cullen can corroborate this and will probably also say the same about himself. There's moments in our lives that we've both experienced immense amount of shame. And talking about it, making yourself realize in talking about it through vulnerability that you're not crazy and you're not the only one that deals with this shame. Yeah. You are doing this to yourself. The people around you, they've got their own stuff. I think for me, I don't disagree with anything Clayton said, but for me, that's not the element that's revealed in the story at this point. What's revealed at the story at this point is that God himself is willing to do anything. And not just anything, but absolutely anything, even to the point that he has to become the initiator of the very thing that he despises in death to take away the shame of his creation, his humans. And... For me, that's so powerful because, you know, when I was growing up in evangelicalism, I was always told, hey, this, you know, her seed will strike, her son's seed will strike your head as this kind of curse to the animal. Uh, to the serpent. This is in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all wild, all animals and among all wild creatures upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I was always kind of told that like that's a, a text about Jesus. Nobody does anything with that text in the Bible ever in the Old Testament. Yeah. Not a once do they do anything with it. It's really not until the church fathers that this becomes like a big thing. Like a Christological. Yeah, like this Christological moment. Paul does a little bit, but like, no, it's really... It's really the church fathers that kind of set this up for you. And so for me, I don't like that I was told that 
we should just naturally accept that as a like Christological text. I don't think if it was that big of a deal, don't you think we'd have heard about it in the rest somewhere else in the Old Testament? For me, what this text does is it tells me, it gives me a tangible place to point to that ends up being true in Jesus. That God is willing to experience death in order to take the shame away from humanity.